Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonica is the name of the city. In uh, the first century AD, it was a mighty, large, prominent, influential city named after the, the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Macedonia, it's, it's, it's positioned in Macedonia, which is the nation of Alexander the Great. And it was, it was even considered when the, the capital of the empire was transitioning out of Rome and eventually resolved in Constantinople. Actually, Thessalonica was considered for a brief time as a prime candidate. That's how significant it was. Paul, the apostle, and Silas went on a missionary journey, and they they did their work mostly in Turkey. At least that's how it started. They were going through a region in Turkey, visiting visiting churches that Paul had established uh, a year earlier or so. And their hope was to get to another very significant city. It actually had a wonder of the world in it. The name of the city was Ephesus. They wanted to get to Ephesus, but they were unable. In fact, uh, they met two, two other guys along the trip. They met Timothy. Timothy joined them, and they met a guy named Luke. And Luke joins them somewhere in this journey. And Luke accounts that the Holy Spirit was blocking their way to preach down in the region of Ephesus. And in fact, Paul the Apostle had a vision one night where the Lord called him over to Macedonia. It was a man in his vision saying, come over here, come over here. And so he did. They got in a boat, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, and they traveled to Philippi. Philippi being the first town in Macedonia that they, they shared the gospel in. And when they were in Philippi, their preaching bore fruit. Philippi is a small, compared to Thessalonica, it was a small city, plus Thessalonica was so prominent, it was in the Roman Empire considered a free city, which means it could do what it wanted. Roman soldiers were not allowed to quarter in Thessalonica. It was so well respected. But in Philippi, it wasn't the same way. There wasn't a Jewish synagogue. There wasn't a lot of things, but Paul and Silas made, did what they could there. They preached the gospel. The gospel took root. It was fruitful. Opposition rose up, and they were beaten, thrown into prison, God miraculously rescued them from prison and they were eventually asked to leave Philippi. Can you just leave and go away? And they did. Many think that Luke stayed behind but uh, that the other three left. The next place they arrive is Thessalonica. And I'm going to read for you a moment out of Acts. It'll be on the screen here. The account in the city. Uh, But I want you to take note that he's there for three Maybe he was there a little longer than that, but the text gives you the impression of they're there for three weeks, okay? This is what it says. It says, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Isn't that so clear? 
And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews, opposition. Just like Philippi, they preach. There's fruit, significant fruit in this case. Some of the synagogues, so some of the Jewish community convert, many of the devout Greeks. There were many Greek people at the time who were, had a distaste for the pagan idolatry of sort of the pantheon of gods, and they wanted to find something moral in the world. And they were attracted to Judaism because of it. So they would worship outside of the Jewish faith, but they would worship the Jewish God because he was a moral and good God. And those people found Christ, many of them were drawn to Jesus, as well as some prominent women. Three weeks Paul has there, roundabout. Three Sabbaths, three Sunday sermons, plus, I don't know, a couple life groups here and there. And he had to leave. Turns out the Jews rose up, they opposed him, they actually tried to crash his home and drag him out. But he wasn't there, so they grabbed someone else. And it turns out that Silas and Paul sneak out at night. They go to Berea. They do the same thing. There's fruit, then opposition. They have to leave. Paul goes to Athens by himself. He preaches. Not so much fruit. Athens is too smart for its own good. And Paul ends up moving on to Corinth where he preaches. There's opposition. This time it's great opposition, but God gives him victory. Over the opposition says stay. And Paul ends up staying for over a year in in Corinth, preaching the gospel and establishing a church. Meanwhile, you can imagine in the back of his mind is, what about those people who had three weeks of gospel teaching? You ever plant a church in three weeks? Now, they're not starting from zero, but just imagine in his heart what's happening to those people. They barely, they barely had ministry. Well, we'll find out in this letter and in other places that at one point in Corinth, Silas and Timothy show back up and they say, you're not going to believe it. Not only are they still meeting but they're changing the region for Christ. And Paul sits down and writes this letter. He's so excited. I've been praying for you. So this letter is so full of joy. It's so full of encouragement. There's things he's going to tweak about him. He's going to adjust them, but he's going to push on them like a good coach might push on a great athlete, someone who are, who's attentive and wants to be better. It's easy coaching. But he's writing to these believers who took the little bit of good news they had to give and ran with it. That's 1 Thessalonians. I want to start with the first three verses. Uh, Let's see what it says. By the way, Silvanus, Silvanus is Silas. It's just his Latin name. Here's the letter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. 
remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to think about that triplet there, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. You've heard those three words before, faith, hope, and love, different order. This is the first time, this is the earliest letter where Paul uses it. Faith, love, hope. How he braids them together. Works of faith. Faith, you might say, is an expression towards the past. If we place our faith in something, we're placing our faith in something that has happened before. We're trusting in it. So, when the Thessalonians are placing their faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, they're trusting in the fact that Jesus has died and has been resurrected. That's sort of the role that faith is. It's the trustful reliance in past claims. That's how Paul's using it. And that bears fruit. You might think of it this way. What are the things that God has done for us? Christ has died for us. Christ has risen again for us, which suggests God loves us and he has forgiven us. Plus, Christ ha- God has given his spirit to us, which suggests that he has not left us and that he has use for us. All of that, all of that faith is coming from what has already been done for us. The notion, right? If you believe these things, fruit should follow. If you believe God loves me, he's forgiven me, he's with me, he, the power of the spirit is for me and God has use for me. That, that will make for a lively life in Christ. And what Paul's saying here is, is I remember how notable your works, in, your works that came from faith were. Likewise, there's this labor of love, which it's <clears throat> actually, you see the synonym there of work and labor. Labor is actually a harder word than work. It's, it has more of an oppressive nature. They're loving in difficulty is what they're doing. If sort of faith is a past reflection, their labor of love is a present reality. It's what's the nature of the way that they're, that they're behaving with one another right now. He's saying, I remember how careful you were with one another. The way you handled one another in real love. This love, as many of you know, there's many words for love in Greek. They, they break out things like, romantic love or attractional love as being in a different idea than the one they're using here, which is, the word is agape, this willful, sacrificial love. The ability and willingness to love without feedback, without gain. Love that doesn't take. You know, I love chocolate cake, so I eat it, okay? This is, I love chocolate cake, so I make it. It's giving. Paul's saying, I remember the way your faith produces fruit. And I remember the way, the way you love in the midst of affliction. 
the hard work of love, your ability to love without getting your just desserts right now. And finally, I remember your steadfastness of hope. Hope is, steadfastness here is more than patience. It's more like a resolute confidence in the future that you hope for. It's confidence that's going to happen. The willingness of a person not to seek satisfaction now or not to depend on demand satisfaction now, but the willingness of a person because of their confidence of what will happen, it's like a future faith. That's what hope is. It's a, it's a strong, resolute faith in what will happen. Is resolute and strong enough that you can forego satisfaction in the present. You can weather affliction in the present. You know, the greater your hope in the future, uh, the more it places into context your present affliction. The bigger it is, the smaller the pains of the present feel sometimes. If you had to work two jobs right now to keep from taking out a loan for college, right? the momentary afflictions are far exceeded by the knowledge of when I get out of this, I will have no debt. The larger the hope, the more manageable the present. Paul says, you guys, are it's noteworthy. It's memorable. When I pray for you, I remember the fruit of your, the fruit that came from your faith, the nature of your love, and the steady way that you knew, you know that Christ is going to come again for you. You know it, and you act accordingly. It's a great description. I, I, I mean this as an encouragement. What, when you think of yourself, what about you is noteworthy? What, what about your faith, your love, your hope? Is there something there where you can, I don't mean pridefully, I mean just grin before the Lord, like, Lord, thank you that you've given me robust faith. Or, Lord, I have so much hope with what you're going to do in my life. Thank you for that. I mean, I suppose we could always look at what can we use improvement. I'm not saying don't do that. Maybe start with what's right. Okay, let's keep going here. Four, four and five. He's going to start a new thought here. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now I'm stopping here. The fourth verse starts a new idea. Paul says, we know that you belong to God. We know you're his chosen. We know you're part of his chosen. We know that he's at work with you. It's a strong statement of confidence from Paul saying, I, we know this about you. And he's going to start over the next several verses explaining how it is that he knows this. The first one in, in verse five here, the first one we've read is simply one part 
of the broader question. How does Paul know that they're in the Lord? And the first way he addresses it is by the way that the gospel came to them. Paul says, hey, I know, I know you're in the Lord because of, of the way it was that we were able to come to you. You didn't just hear the gospel. You, know, you didn't get the gospel by an email. Hey, here's true. Good luck with you. XOXO Paul. That's, that's not how the gospel came. It came in word and it came in power. In other words, we were able to say the gospel to you and we were able to live the gospel out before you. The truthfulness of the truth of God was lived out in your presence so that you know he's true. It's like this, you know, you know what makes a person more forgiving when they experience forgiveness. And they see the power of that. And then they realize what Christ has done for them. And they experience the power of that. You know what helps a person understand kindness? When a a Christian is genuinely kind to them in a deep and meaningful way, that's the power. Our truth has power. It has life-changing power. And what Paul is saying is, is when we came to you, we didn't just say it. We were given the opportunity to live it. And the third thing is that the Holy Spirit showed up and blessed it. And we taught in conviction. There's these four ideas. We said it. It was preached in power. The Holy Spirit, right, the otherness of God blessed it. I don't know the specifics about it, but God himself confirmed their ministry there. And it was done in full conviction, meaning When we talked to you, we believed it. We believe what we said, and you know we believe what we said. In fact, he says to them, you remember how it was when we got there? He reminds them in the text. You remember? When we read, we'll go on to find, when Paul and Silas were preaching among them, they didn't charge them money, they 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 weren't a burden on them, they went and got jobs, They found their own source of income so as not to be a burden to this community. That's conviction. Paul's saying, you know we believed what we had to say to you because we did it on our dime. Word, power, spirit, conviction. It's the bedrock of what you if we're going to use the word evangelism, it's the bedrock of real evangelism. Not just the words. The words accompanied by consistent life that validate the words through the assistance and help of the Holy Spirit that is in unison with the words from a conviction that you believe what you're saying. But that's just one part of the way Paul knows. He says, I know you guys are in the Lord in part because of how it all came to you. But I'm going to pick up in six, but it's more than that. Look look what he says in six. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. He's sort of exaggerating at the end. He's, he's being so complimentary to them. He's essentially saying, you've worked us out of a job. <laughs> I don't need to preach anymore because you've done such a good job at it, is what he's saying. We know you're in Christ, in part because of the way the message came. The Spirit was in it. We were devoted to it, and you listened. But, but, now, as we hear about you, we're finding out that you have become imitators of us. And that's how we know you're in the Lord. Because word is coming to us that you're preaching now with word and power and spirit and conviction. So much so that the phrase is sounded forth. It's the only time it ever shows up in the Bible, this, this expression, sounded forth. Your witness has reverberated over the land like an echo. Some would call it like a trumpet. Some would say like a thunderclap, the way thunder rolls. That's in the heart of sounded forth. Like the sound waves have pushed through the area so that other communities of faith are talking about your faithfulness. The idea of imitating, it comes, in the Greek is comes, the base of the word stems from this idea of imprint, to make a mark, a stamp, like a typeset. So when Paul says, you, we find that you're imitators of us and of the Lord, it actually, it, it draws out a pretty beautiful line here. God sends his son, who is the perfect imprint of the Father. <laughs> God sends the exact representation of God to us in Christ. Who impresses his life on us. Specifically on the apostles. Impresses his life on the apostles. Who then what? Become imitators of him. So Christ preached in word and power and spirit and conviction. His apostles go out to the world doing what? Imitating him. Preaching in word and power and spirit and conviction. At one point, one of these apostles ends up in Thessalonica, preaching in this fashion, word, power, spirit, and conviction. He leaves after three weeks only to find out that they are now going throughout Macedonia and greater Greece, preaching in word, power, spirit, and conviction. the power of imitation. Uh, let me share, uh, it was just a beautiful story I heard this week. <clears throat> I was at the missions team meeting this past week on Wednesday. And while I was there, one of the members of the team who was just in West Africa was sharing a report about how things went, how we should follow up, that sort of thing. And there's been a lot of hopes, a lot of sort of what do we hope to gain through this? What do we hope to see? And certainly, you won't be surprised in the sorts of things we hope to experience and see. We want to see converts to Jesus Christ. 
We want to see churches that we work with empowered to disciple their own followers better. Those are the big ones that we've longed for. But he shared one that he had never expected that caught him quite by surprise. And I don't know if we could have ever have anticipated. He said this. He said, one of the churches that we've been going to by now, because we've been among him four, four times now, four or five times, has been so moved by why we would continue to cross the ocean to see them. Why would we cover this great distance to come help in the work of the gospel? So moved that he and his poor small church, while they can't cross an ocean, they can go another 45 minutes down the road. And they have found a village that has no imprint of Jesus whatsoever. And they're saying, we're going there. Do you see what just happened? We sounded forth. Word, power, spirit, and conviction went. And I'm not, I'm not trying to pick this fruit as though it's ours. I just want you to see the truthfulness of it. That word, power, spirit, and conviction went and moved and they became imitators of us also and of us of the Lord. And now they're going farther. That's how Paul knows that they're in Christ. Let me finish the chapter. Verse 9. He's speaking of the, the people who are bringing word back to him. <clears throat> For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says, the reputation that I'm getting is that people are testifying to me that you've turned from idols. Remember how many, how many Greeks? Many Greeks who were devout. So many of the people who are coming are coming out of a lifestyle of idolatry. I should stop. Every human is coming out of a lifestyle of idolatry. Turning from their idols to the living and true God waiting for Christ to come. It's, it's almost in symmetry with the very first triplet. Remember, works of faith, labor of love, steadfastness is in hope. Here's turning, turning from idols, serving God, waiting for Christ. It's, it's like conversion distilled down to its rawest form. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to turn from your idols. Serve the Lord as true and as he's the one true God and wait for Christ. You hear the size of hope in that? <laughs> like we want to turn from our idols, serve God and get something now. There is fruit now, but the truth of it is we turn, we turn, we worship, and we wait for Jesus. The fullness of that hope 
should matter. This last closing thought. In thinking about idolatry, one thing in my mind, I, I'm gonna, I won't say categorically, but I do think the vast majority of idolatry in our lives, seeking, seeking deep answers from other sources, okay? The vast majority of idolatry in our life is to get a fix to a problem right now. It speaks of our inability to wait on Christ. And it's not that God doesn't care about the now. It's that the hope of Christ to come puts the now in perspective. Because the bigger our hope, the more manageable our present. Let me pray. Lord, help us to think right now, are we leaving? Are we turning from idols? I I lift up those here today who may be in that question of, I need to turn, Lord. And I pray for them. Give them the strength through your spirit, through the power of the gospel, and through the conviction of Christians, through the truth of your word. May we turn. May we worship you as the one true God, Lord. And may the great hope of Christ's salvation make the meantime manageable. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.